So Amos chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, you follow along as I read for us. This is what Holy Scripture says. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And he said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. So I will send a fire upon the house of Hatzael, and it shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. I will break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitants from the valley of Avon, and him who holds the scepter from Beth-Eden, and the people of Syria shall go into exile to Kir, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up to Edom. So I will send a fire upon the wall of Gaza, and it shall devour her strongholds. I will cut off the inhabitants from Ashdod, and him who holds the scepter from Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron, and the remnant of the Philistines shall perish, says the Lord God. Thus says the Lord for three transgressions of Tyra, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Because they delivered up a whole people to Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. So I will send a fire upon the wall of Tyra, and it shall devour her strongholds. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity, and his anger tore perpetually, and he kept his wrath forever. So I will send a fire upon Teman, and it shall devour the strongholds of Basra. Thus says the Lord. For three transgressions of the Ammonites, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead, that they might enlarge their border. So I will kindle a fire in the wall of Rabbah, and it shall devour her strongholds with shouting on the day of battle, with a tempest in the day of whirlwind, and their king shall go into exile, he and his princes together, says the Lord." Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because he burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. So I will send a fire upon Moab and it shall devour the strongholds of Kerioth and Moab shall die amid uproar, amid shouting and the sound of the trumpet. I will cut off the ruler from its midst and will kill all its princes with him, says the Lord. 
Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes. But their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. So I will send a fire upon Judah and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken and pledged. And in the house of their God, they drink wine, the wine of those who have been fined. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars and who was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. Also, it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine commanded the prophets, saying, you shall not prophesy. Behold, I will press you down in your place as a cart full of sheaves presses down. Flight shall perish from the swift, and the strong shall not retain his strength, nor shall the mighty save his life. He who handles the bow shall not stand. He who is swift of foot shall not save himself, nor shall he who rides the horse save his life. And he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, declares the Lord." This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Oh God, it is our privilege to hold that book. And now we pray, oh God, that we would hear the word, be changed by it, and be doers of it. We ask in the name of Jesus, amen. Please, please keep your Bible open to the book of Amos. What should be done by us concerning Russia's buildup of its military along the border of Ukraine? What should we think of the Chinese government and its alleged ethnic cleansing of Muslim Uyghurs? Can the premier of Quebec actually tax people for not getting vaccinated? Do any of these things really matter? More importantly, do any of these things really matter to God? What if I were to take you to a part of the Bible that talked about things like pandemics, politics, the abuse of power. Would you find that relevant to your day? 
What if I went even further and told you that that part of the Bible was meant to speak directly to the people of God today? Well, then take your Bible, and if you don't have it open there, find the crispy pages part, Amos. That was supposed to be a little bit funny because not many of us read the Minor Prophets, but when we don't read our Minor Prophets, we're missing a major message. So come with me to the book of Amos, to the day in which the lion roared. And he roared through the voice of this particular prophet, one prophet by the name of Amos. We'll look at him a little more closely in a second, but I want you first of all to notice the days in which Amos lived. This will help you understand what is happening as he prophesies. So look at Amos chapter 1, verse 1, the words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel... In the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. So we are dropping down into that part of Israel's history where they have been divided into two kingdoms. You've got Judah to the south and Israel to the north. And the civil war that split them took place right after the reign of Solomon. So Saul is Israel's first king, then he's replaced by David, and David unifies the kingdom, and then his son Solomon, this is the glory years for Israel, he has a long and prosperous reign, then Solomon dies, and his son Rehoboam becomes king, and Rehoboam is, well, he's a jerk. He's uh, young, cocky, and, uh, and is really not a good king. And under his very poor leadership, the 12 tribes of Israel split into two distinct countries, really. So the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, they join together and they become the southern kingdom, most often called Judah. And then the 10 other tribes joined together under a man by the name of Jeroboam. This gets a little confusing because you've got Rehoboam and Jeroboam, but they're two different guys. And Jeroboam, we'll call him Jeroboam the first. He consolidates the 10 tribes in the north. He's the dude who made the golden calves to altar again and put up a wall so people couldn't go to Jerusalem and started his own, his own priestly line, not the sons of Aaron. He did all of these things which were of a great offense to God. And now when we get to Amos, we are 12 kings later, all right, from that day. So that's Jeroboam 1, and then there's about 11 kings, and then there's Jeroboam the second. And we're in that day and age. And the little we know about Jeroboam the second can be found, you don't need to turn there, but it can be found in 2 Kings chapter 14. He had an extremely long reign, a 41-year reign, which is really, really long in the days of the kings. And you would think with such a long reign, there would be a lot written about him. Here's what's written about him. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. The the chronologer here is saying, you know what? He was just like his namesake. He did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. It's a good thing his name is Jeroboam the second because he's no better than Jeroboam the first. And yet, God is able to use even evil rulers to benefit his people. 
In 2 Kings 14.25, it says this Jeroboam restored the border of Israel from Labo Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah, which is a way of saying under this king, after all kinds of troubles and difficulties and civil war and the rest, under this particular king, the kingdom of Israel was extended almost to the boundaries which Solomon had established. These are glory days. These, these are days of prosperity. These are days of wealth. These are days of security for the ten tribes, of the nation of Israel. And so this book begins by saying the words of Amos which he saw concerning Israel, that Israel, those ten tribes. And so the message of the book is directed to the northern kingdom, which makes the birthplace and the citizenship of the prophet Kind of peculiar. It says, the words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa. Do you know where Tekoa was? Right beside Bethlehem. It's in the south. It's in Judah. So adding to the offense of what this prophet is going to say is the fact that Amos was a foreigner. It's a little bit like some, some American coming up here and telling us Canadians how to run our country. And we'd be like, well, who do you think you are? You're not even one of us. That's certainly how Amos was received. If you flip ahead to chapter 7, one of the false priests that Jeroboam had established was a man by the name of Amaziah. And Amaziah is listening to Amos, and this is what he says to Amos. O seer, a seer is just another word for prophet. O seer, go, flee away to the land of Judah. Eat bread there, prophesy there, but never again at Bethel, for it's the king's sanctuary. It's the temple of the kingdom. And then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, this false priest, I was no prophet, nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord, Yahweh, took me from following the flock, and Yahweh said to me, go, prophesy to my people Israel. So Amos is not some professional clergy. He's not in the prophet's school. He's a farmer, a keeper of sheep, herds, and a fig orchard. And yet God made him a prophet. Never let your worldly identity keep you back from what the Lord is calling you to do. Thomas Lewis Johnson was born a slave in America in 1836. Kids, any of you around 12 years old, 10, 11, 12 years old? Yeah, well, imagine being 12 years old and being taken from your mom and sold to somebody, and you don't know if you'll ever see your mom again. That was Thomas Johnson, 12 years old, sold, and yet his mom had taught him the Lord's Prayer, and that little bit of truth resided in that heart. And when he was 21, Thomas Johnson cried out to God to save him. Not save him from his slavery, save him from his sins. And God saved him. And almost immediately, Johnson had a sense of personal calling and desire to preach the gospel. He didn't know how to read nor write. It was against the law for him to learn how to read. So he secretly broke the law taught himself all kinds of clever means, like asking 
one of your master's sons to repeat his lessons in order to help him. He was actually teaching himself. And he was doing all of that because Thomas Johnson wanted to read the Bible for himself. Eventually, he learned how to read. He started in the ministry. And then God took him actually to Charles Spurgeon's pastor's college. He spent two years being trained there. And then that man took the gospel to Africa. God can call a slave to be a missionary pastor. God can call a farmer to be a prophet. God doesn't care what your status is in the eyes of the world. If he gives you a job to do, then do it the best you can. Amos Amos doesn't tell us about his call or about his travels, but he lets us know about his times so that we can better understand the sting of his message. He wasn't coming up to Israel to say, hey guys, great job on the expansion of the border. Great job in amassing wealth. In fact, Amos ties his prophecy to an earthquake. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa two years before the earthquake, If you graduated with me from the Master's Seminary in 1994 and you and I ran into one another and I said to you, well, they got married a few months after the earthquake. And you and I would know exactly what I was talking about. I would not have to qualify the earthquake reference by stating, you know, the 1994 earthquake, uh, Northridge quake with its 6.7 magnitude, 20 second long, violent freeway collapsing terror. (laughs) All I have to say is the earthquake. You lived through it, and I lived through it, and we know what we're talking about. There's been some recent archaeological digs in Israel that have uncovered evidence of a huge earthquake around 760 B.C. Guess when Amos was prophesying? Yeah, right then. It is no surprise This lines up perfectly with the dates of his ministry. To the people that Amos was writing to, all he needed to say was the earthquake. But that earthquake is more than just a time reference. Scattered all through the prophetic writing of of Amos are these allusions to something like an earthquake, to God using an earthquake as a tool of his judgment. So you go to Amos 6.11, for behold, the Lord commands, and the great house shall be struck down into fragments, like my chimney in Santa Clarita in 1994, and the little house into bits. And so the earthquake was likely one really clear, big expression of the judgment of God against Israel that Amos is talking about two years before it came. So by the time Amos writes this all down, he says, look, I, I warned you about that earthquake two years, before it, two years before it arrived. Maybe you were here two years ago and you, you heard me or someone like me warning you that unless you repent of your sins and put your trust in the Lord Jesus, you will be judged forever by God in an eternal hell. And maybe your personal earthquake is coming this week. You're going to be going about your business just like I was sound asleep on January 17th, 1994 at 4.30 in the morning when the earth beneath me began to shake. You'll be going about your business when the earth beneath you, either metaphorically or literally, begins to shake like mad. Many people died in the Northridge earthquake. They went to bed thinking everything was fine and they never woke. 
Friend, if your life ends this week, will you smile at the face of God or will you collapse under the awful realization that you squandered your chance at forgiveness and are now going to spend an endless eternity with endless regret? Many died in that earthquake in Israel, but they had been warned they had been clearly warned, and they all heard it. Amos verse, chapter 1, verse 2, he said, The Lord roars from Zion, utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn, the top of Carmel withers. God didn't whisper through his prophet. He roars like a lion through his prophet, and his message was heard from the valleys to the mountaintops. All people heard it. And his roaring begins with what in all likelihood sounded like really good news to the people who were listening, the people of Israel. There are seven, note that, seven. That's an important number in your Bible. We've talked about it many times. It's the number of completion. It's the number of fulfillment. There are seven words of condemnation against seven of Israel's neighbors. This takes us to our second point, seven condemnations. We'll look at the first one a little more closely and then rapidly the rest. So the first word of condemnation, the first word of judgment comes against Syria. This is chapter one, verse three. It begins with this statement, for three trans transgressions of Damascus, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Now, you might have, in the reading of God's Word, noticed that each one begins with that statement. But in each case, only one sin is listed. You might think of it as the fourth sin, as the cream of the crop sin. And here's something you must not miss. These are foreign nations that Amos is prophesying about. They don't have a Bible. They have not been given God's word. They have not been given God's law. These are complete foreigners. And yet these foreign nations are being condemned for their sins against God. That means you can sin against God even if you don't know God has said something is a sin. The New Testament affirms this. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 2, for all who have sinned without the law, meaning they haven't been given special revelation, they don't have a Bible, all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, there are a lot of themselves even though they don't have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Ignorance of God's law is no excuse. Just because a nation ignores God doesn't mean they won't have to answer to God. Syria, Damascus, is condemned for their sin. What is their sin? It is the abuse of people. Look at the rest of verse 3. Because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. And that's one of those things a little explanation might help. A threshing sledge is a large board, maybe double the size of this desk. 
and on one side of the board are embedded sharp stones or glass or something like that. And then the, 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 the straw, the grass is all laid out on the ground and the threshing sledge is put on top of it and it's got a couple of ropes attached and it's just dragged in circles over the top so that it can separate the seed from the straw. So it is grinding and it is crushing. It'd be a very common scene to anybody alive in that day. And Amos says, Damascus has sinned because they have so harshly treated the people of Gilead, a town across the border. He's saying, look, they didn't just defeat them in battle. They horribly mistreated them. People were used for profit. They became collateral damage, which is a fancy way of saying abused. In other words, Damascus is guilty of crimes against humanity. Now, I want to pause here because you need to see that all the sins of these nations, in all seven cases, all six cases at least, are all God judging people for their mistreatment of other people. They're enacting unrighteousness in the biblical term, injustice in the biblical category. These are sins of social injustice, social unrighteousness. In particular, they are abusing the weakest, the most marginalized. And when I read that, I want, us to th- I want us to simply ask the question, what about Canada? How is Canada treating her weakest, her most marginalized? How is Canada as a nation treating the unborn? Why are we so supportive of assisted suicide for our elderly and our disabled? Why do we easily ignore the plight of the mentally ill? If God evaluates nations today the way God evaluated nations in Amos' day, what grade does the nation of Canada get? Damascus got a failing grade. And with that F came God's condemnation, verse 4. So I will send a fire upon the house of Hatziel. Down to verse 5, him who holds the scepter will be removed. These are the two parts to God's judgment. One is fire, one is political upheaval. The fire here meaning the physical destruction of the institutions from which we draw our security and and our sense of prosperity and the protection of our prosperity. And then the political upheaval of rulers being cut off and sent away or killed and the nation being left defenseless. And these two forms of judgment are in each of the seven. So that's the pattern. You get a nation named, you get their sin identified, and then you have their punishment described. So let's go to the second one. We move south now to Philistia. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza, that's one of the cities in Philistia, and for four I'll not revoke the punishment. What's the sin? Well, they sold off an entire people group to a different nation. Their sin is treating people as property. Treating people as something for profit. Because they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up to eat them. What's their punishment? Institutional political destruction. So I'll send fire upon the wall of Gaza. It shall devour strongholds. I'll cut off the inhabitants from Ashdod. And he molds the scepter from Ashkelon. I'll turn my hand against Ekron. These are four of the five cities of Philistia. The fifth one comes later in the book. 
And then the prophet goes north, this time up the coast to the little island nation of Tyra. For thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyra and for four, I'll not revoke the punishment. What's their sin? Well, their sin is selling people that they were in covenant with. There was some kind of political arrangement, alliance made. They break the covenant, covenant and they sell them into slavery to a different nation. So they add the sin of betrayal to the sin of enslavement. They're word breakers. Because they delivered up a whole nation to Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. What's their punishment? Institutional political destruction. So I'll send fire upon the wall of Tyre, it shall devour her stronghold. And the prophet goes southeast now to the nation of Edom. Verse 11, for thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom and for four, I'll not revoke the punishment. And you would expect, if you've been reading carefully, you would expect that the thing that they're going to get rebuked for is buying all the slaves uh, from the two nations that just came before, the the Philistines and the people from Tyra. But that's not. God looks past their purchasing of people to their deeper offense, which is excessive anger, ruthless, pitiless fury directed at these enslaved people that have been sold to them, their their unchecked cruelty toward the weak. So he says, because he pursued his brother with a sword, cast off all pity, and his anger tore perpetually, and he kept his wrath forever. In fact, it was Edom's assault against his brother Israel that was his offense. Remember, Isaac had twins, right? Rebecca and Isaac had the twins, Esau and Jacob. Esau gets renamed what? Edom. Jacob gets renamed what? Israel. He pursued his brother with a sword. So what's the punishment? Institutional, political destruction. So I'll send a fire upon Teman and it shall devour the strongholds of Basra. Now he goes north. Uh, over Moab this time, all the way up to Ammon, verse 13, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of the Ammonites and for four, I'll not revoke the punishment. What's their sin? Their sin is the horrific treatment of women and children in neighboring Gilead. It's murder, it's assault, and it's all motivated out of this selfish ambition to extend their borders. They have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead and that, that they might enlarge their border. The Ammonites unleash their cruelty against the most vulnerable. And it was out of this selfish ambition. And God reserves some of his strongest words of judgment for them. After all, father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. Psalm 68, 5. What's the punishment? Institutional political destruction. I'll kindle a fire in the wall of Rabbah, it shall devour strongholds. They will all be taken down. Now he goes down south to Moab. So that's Ammon and Moab. Ammon and Moab. Ammon and Moab. Ring a bell in your Old Testament reading? Remember Lot? Abraham and Lot. Lot's 
the nephew of Abraham. He goes off and he settles in Sodom. Abraham intercedes so that he won't be destroyed with the Sodomites. And as they're fleeing out of the city, Lot's wife dies. She turns into a pillar of salt. Lot and his two daughters are hiding in a cave. The two daughters apparently think that all humanity is dead. And so they do something revolting. They get their father drunk on one night. And then on the second night, on the first night, the older one sleeps with her father. On the second night, the second does. They each become pregnant from their own father. One has a kid named Moab and one has a kid named Ammon. The Ammonites and the Moabites were always the enemies of God's people, even though they're related to God's people through Abraham. For thus says the Lord, chapter 2, verse 1, for three transgressions of Moab and for four, I'll not revoke the punishment. What's their sin? Well, it's a sin that may not appear that offensive to us, the, the total disrespect of human remains. In our culture, things like cremation are common. They're an accepted practice. But this was a desecration of those who had been made in the image and likeness of God. He burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. It wasn't good enough just to conquer the king. He had to desecrate the body. What's the punishment? Institutional political destruction. I will send fire upon Moab. It shall devour the strongholds of Kerioth. Carry off its rulers from its midst and kill all its princes with him, says the Lord. So there you have six foreign nations all about to be judged by God. And then comes the shock. The prophet from Judah prophesying in Israel names the six nations and how they're under God's judgment for their sins and he gets to number seven and says for three transgressions of Judah and for four I will not revoke the punishment. Now you have to understand in that culture as a listener you are much like you might think, you know, we sort of do things in threes and, and we're sort of, we see, we have this internal sense of completion when the person gets to the third. And in that culture, to get to the seventh would have been internally this sense of, ah, this is the big point. This is what the six have been driving to. This is where it's all heading. Oh, would you look at that? He, he identifies his own country. What is their sin? What is Judah's sin? They have rebelled against the revelation. They have rebelled against God's law. Their actual sins are likely no different from all the other sins already listed except for this. Judah knew better. Judah had the law. Judah had multiple laws instructing them how to treat the poor, how to treat the enemy that you just defeated, how to treat the marginalized, how to treat widows, how to treat orphans, how to treat the homeless, but they had abandoned all of that. Look at what he says. They have rejected the law of the Lord, have not kept his statutes, but their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. And what is the punishment? institutional political destruction. I will send a fire upon Judah. It shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. And if you're one of the Israelites hearing that, you're like, whoa, man, even Judah gets it. I think I could picture Amos in some town square in one of the Israelite cities delivering his one, two, three, five, six, seventh. 
And if I was Amos, I would have put a pregnant pause right there. Everybody listens. They hear the seventh. And they begin, wow. Wow. Well, you know, those, those Syrians, those Ammonites, those are scoundrels. The, and maybe they burn forever. And when you come to think about it, those lousy Judeans, I mean honestly, like they're just as bad. Hypocrites. And they begin to mutter amongst themselves and turn and walking away. When Amos starts again, here's the surprise. Verse 6, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. You say, what? Wait, Israel? That's us. <laughs> That's me. I'm talking about me. Oh, yes. And this time, all four sins are listed. Sin number one, they sell off innocent people like worthless property because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of shoes, a pair of sandals. Sin number two, they pervert justice for the people who can't afford the expensive lawyers. Verse seven, those who, who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. Sin number three, they practice a perverse sexual immorality and idolatry. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profane, likely some form of profane temple worship. She's a temple prostitute. Sin number four, they take advantage of the disadvantage. Remember, cloaks that were given in pledge, the law said were to always be returned at night so that the persons who, uh, who gave it to you in pledge had something to sleep in and to stay warm at night. Verse 8, they lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge, and in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. This, this is utterly inconceivable when someone considers how Israel ended up in this place of prosperity and wealth and safety. God had given them so much, and now they are acting the opposite of God, and they're sticking it to the weak and the vulnerable. The people who at one time were the very definition of weak and vulnerable. They have forgotten that God brought them into the promised land, verse 9. It was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars, and who's strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. They forgot that it was God who rescued them out of their slavery in Egypt, verse 10. Also, it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, led you 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. They forgot that God had given them his word. He had given them his word, and he had given them teachers to teach them that word, verse 11. I raised up some of your sons for prophets, some of your young men for Nazarites, men who are devoted to you in a somewhat prophetic ministry. It's not, is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? And they ignored, they, they rejected, they abandoned God, but you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets saying, you shall not prophesy. And what's the punishment for Israel? You're going to get crushed. Not a one of you will escape. Verse 13. Behold, I will press you down in your place as a cart full of sheaves presses down. Imagine it's a bountiful harvest and you've overloaded your cart and you're one of the sheaves on the bottom of the cart. You're just compressed down. This is the imagery he says. Flight shall perish from the swift and the strong shall not retain his strength nor shall the mighty save his life. He who handles the bow shall not stand 
He who is swift of foot shall not save himself, nor shall he who rides the horse save his life. He who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, says the Lord. Brothers and sisters, it turns out that the primary target of Amos' prophecy was not the pagan nations surrounding Israel, but it was Israel, the church of God, the people of God. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. James 1, 27. Fake Religion means you are worldly and it means you don't care for the weak. Fake religion was the same for Israel as it is for the church. In other words, the message of this prophet is not lost to time and culture. We live in a nation that enshrines into law a distortion of the Imago Dei. We live in a nation that pays people to end the lives of our children. We live in a nation that rejects the truth carved into the walls of the building from which our leaders rule. And there is only one way for that situation to ultimately change. Brothers and sisters, it is not by overturning governments. The only way this country improves is if the people that make up this country improve, if the gospel falls on believing hearts, if individual citizens of the land repent and turn to Jesus and, and then live lives by which they care for and value the least of all. And that work has to begin in the churches, churches like this. This church, we need reviving. We need a refreshing of our grasp of the love of God our Savior. We need to be reminded, like Israel was reminded, of all that God has done for us to rescue us from our slavery to sin and to set us on the path to life. We need to confess our complicity in the sins of our country. We need to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God and repent. We need to pick up our Bibles and then ask, Lord, what would you have me to do? Not, what, what, not, not, Lord, what would you have the prime minister to do? It is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? 1 Peter 4, verse 17. We know the answer to that. We know what the outcome will be for those who do not obey the gospel of God. The same outcome that would eventually come to unrepentant Israel. They will be judged forever by the God who, by, by the God who had rescued them and prospered them and given them so much. The Lion of Judah roars. Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. The lion 
of the tribe of Judah has vanquished, sin has conquered the grave for all who fully trust in him. Moabite or Israelite, your only hope is the same, to repent from your sins and put all of your trust in the only Savior the world ever gets, who is Jesus Christ. I will stop as abruptly as Amos stopped. The lion has roared. Now you've got a week to think about it. Will you come back here next Sunday different. Let's pray together. Oh, our Lord Jesus, we would have no hope whatsoever in this world if it wasn't for you. If you had not come, if you had not laid down your life for us, if you had not lived a perfect life for us, none of us could get to heaven. None of us could be good enough. None of us could work hard enough. None of us could do enough good things. Our sins run deep and rampant. Oh Christ, how we thank you. We love you so much and are so grateful for your saving work. And we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would save every soul in this gym, the gym downstairs, people at PRBC, people watching at home online. I pray that every single person before the day is over would believe on Jesus so that if their earthquake comes tomorrow, they will smile at the face of God. Oh, Holy Spirit, work now. Do a good thing in us. Help us all, we pray. Father, make us a church that lives in the good light of the gospel every day, rejoices in all that you have done for us, and never forgets your great salvation. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.